This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer and on Between the Lines this week. Skyrocketing costs and uncertainty over Russian energy supply to Europe. China breaks off climate talks with the US over Taiwan. Meanwhile, coal is booming worldwide and the percentage of global electricity generated by natural gas, that's rising. So is the energy transition agenda in sync with political and economic reality? That's later. But let's hear first from a leading critic of the Indigenous voice to Parliament. It would be far more dignifying if we were recognised and respected as individuals in our own right who are not simply defined by our racial heritage, but by the content of our character. It's time to stop feeding into a narrative that promotes racial divide, a narrative that claims to try to stamp out racism, but applies racism in doing so and encourages a racist overreaction. We spend days and weeks each year recognising Aboriginal Australia in many ways in symbolic gestures that fail to push the needle one micromillimetre toward improving the lives of the most marginalised in any genuine way. Well, that's from the maiden address of Jacinta Nambajimba Price, a Walpuri Celtic woman, and the new country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory. She recently delivered what the veteran columnist Greg Sheridan called, quote, a kind of Gettysburg address that should be read by all Australians. And with that, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Between the Lines, Jacinta Nambajimba-Price. Hello, Senator. Hello, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, in your maiden address, you tell some heart-wrenching stories in remote communities that sadly fail to attract the kind of media attention that The Voice attracts. Tell us about some of those tragedies. Well, you know, just recently there was a murder-suicide of a young mother, 30-year-old mother and her two-month-old baby. She left behind two other children in that incident and it really didn't seem to attract much um, national media attention that um, a mother and a baby were effectively shot and then the perpetrator then turning the, the gun on himself. And... There was there was that tragedy, but there was also uh, an Aboriginal woman in Catherine had taken the life of another Aboriginal woman close to her as well in, in a violent brawl. Not so long after that, another Aboriginal man had taken the life of his own brother. His charge was reduced to manslaughter, but that was as a result of a, a fight between the two of them. And this sort of stuff just... It goes on and on and on, um, you know, in, in Central Australia, in the Northern Territory, and it's it's really just, it's absolutely heartbreaking just how consistently these sorts of tragedies occur, and yet there's very little attention, there's very little concern, there seems, from certainly those who march the streets, you know, fighting on behalf of the rights of Indigenous Australians. And and, you know, it's something that I've been trying to bring to the attention of the wider Australian audience for a very long time. And this Indigenous on Indigenous violence, you say the locals have been desensitised to it and there's no question these disturbing stories, with rare exceptions, get little media interest. This is Janet Albrechtson, columnist at The Australian. I'll run this quote by you. 
condemning a racist remark at a footy game attracts more attention than the tragic death of an Indigenous child by an Indigenous parent. Jacinta. Yeah, there's there's so much more focus on if if there appears to be a, a white Australian doing the wrong thing by an Indigenous Australian in, in, in any way, as, much, as little as, you know, making a remark that might hurt somebody's feelings, it seems to be far more concerning for the wider Australian audience and certainly the media than it is people being having their lives taken from them um, in terms of black-on-black violence, which is the number one reason why Indigenous Australians are incarcerated at such a high rate, which is because of acts of violence committed against those that, um, you know, that they're supposed to love and care for. And it, it goes to the argument around the fact that we're always hearing about such were incarcerated at such high rates, but the the notion that that is pushed by those who um, are, are always talking about that and and the activist class is that because it's we've got a racist system, but that's not the case at all. If we stop the violence, we in fact uh, will reduce rates of incarceration. Yeah, well, this raises the question about exploring violence within Indigenous communities. I mean, it does raise challenging cultural questions. This is hardly a novel observation, but is a good example Aboriginal customary law. Yeah, look, absolutely. And um, what's really concerning is there has always been a push to recognise customary law. There's an element of the treaty negotiations going on in Victoria at the moment around the fact that it's going to be led by culture and law. And I don't know, I don't think the wider Australian public, I don't think those purporting to know what that uh, means actually is so there one it it leaves the opportunity for 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 opportunists to make things up but it also when it comes to customary law particularly in the northern territory customary law involves violent punishment for laws that are broken and in some of those violent punishments involves also if a woman breaks certain laws they can be subject to rape basically as punishment and and <sighs> and you know this is well documented stuff that you only have to look as far as the Ngara book of law which is Yungu law in the top end uh, which suggests that you know women can be subject to prolonged rape pretty much. Um, the word rape's not used because there is no such word in many Aboriginal languages because it's seen as, um, you know, appropriate in circumstances to subject women to that sort of thing. Um, but also torture, you know, the word torture is used in describing some of the punishment that can be um, meted out. And we don't have these conversations. We're denied um, these sorts of conversations in the argument because we're supposed to, as Indigenous women, stand by our race for the betterment of our race as opposed to our own individual individual human rights uh, as women to live free of violence. Yeah, well, you've cited Australian Institute of Criminology statistics that show something like in between 20 and 25% of people killed by their current or former intimate partners, they're Indigenous. That's a strikingly high percentage, Jacinta. Yeah, it's it's very, very high, um, but there seems to be this undertone in this country that it's okay for 
you know, Indigenous women to suffer these sorts of rapes. Uh, you know, if, if it's if it's black on black violence, it's okay. But if if we were suffering at those rates at the hands of white perpetrators, there would be an absolute uproar about it. There'd be demands for, to uphold our human rights. There'd be marches in the street. Um, but there isn't that sort of thing because, again, it's um, it, it's it's like a, a desensitisation, an acceptance of violence amongst um, Indigenous Australians, between Indigenous Australians. My guest is Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, the new Senator from the Northern Territory. Now, Jacinta, you come to Parliament as someone who has closely studied the plight of remote disadvantaged communities, both in your role as an Alice Springs Town Councillor uh, your work as Head of Indigenous Affairs at the Centre for Independent Studies, which I should sh- acknowledge I have run for the past five years. And disclaimer, I hired you in 2018. <laughs> um, tell us about the kind of uh, policy prescriptions that you advocate to address these deep-seated problems in those remote communities. Well, I think to begin with, um, the way in which services are delivered and funding is distributed around the country is largely based on Indigenous population, number of Indigenous population. We've got right now in Australia, we've got a you know, dramatic increase of those who are identifying um, in the census as Indigenous. Um, for example, in 2021, I think it was 92,300 Australians ticked the Indigenous box for the first time. So when that happens, it skews the way in which funding and services are delivered. And we have to start looking at how we look after marginalised Australians regardless of heritage. Just because Indigenous, you know, just because you're Indigenous or have Indigenous heritage does not automatically make you a marginalised Australian. And so I think our focus should be supporting those who are particularly marginalised. And, of course, through my paper, Worlds Apart, which was published through the Centre for Independent Studies, it actually demonstrates that the most marginalised are those in remote communities, uh, people whose first language is not English, um, who have the least opportunity for completing education uh, than anyone else in this country, and they are, they are the most marginalised. So we should be focusing our efforts on ensuring that it is those people that we are supporting first and foremost and not just generalising uh, about funding and support for Indigenous Australians, for Aboriginal Australians in general. Um, and I think, you know, another big issue is the fact that our bureaucracies um, have a lot to answer for as well, have, have um, a lot to be held to account in terms of um, failures uh, to to achieve some of the things that they're funded and, and you know supposed to do, but we don't we don't look at those sorts of things and and the proposal around the voice is suggesting we just apply um, create another bureaucracy and place it in our constitution. I think the first thing we have to do is deal with the bureaucracies that we we yeah. currently have to ensure what? that they're doing the right thing. What about the alcohol bans in the Northern Territory, which have been recently lifted? Yeah, that's another huge issue, especially for the Northern Territory. With the the ending of the um, the Stronger Futures legislation that was that was put in place uh, to create those bans, it was it was always thought by the coalition that the territory government would simply roll that legislation over to become territory responsibility. And the Northern Territory government failed to do that. They failed to consult with the community 
you know, there were many Aboriginal organisations that were deeply concerned about the effects of alcohol being available back out in communities and on town camps. And we're already seeing um, the effects of that. We're already seeing that, um, you know, just the other day there was a 13-year-old um, that was sexually assaulted in shopping in Kmart in Alice Springs. Uh, we had a, a man who was completely naked jump on a driving taxi in the middle of the day and stomp its window. Uh, I've, I'm getting reports from foster parents who who have been out of the system <sighs> who understand that they're, the children they were caring for because Territory families decided to put them back into their families are now being picked up um, by authorities because the parents are more interested in drinking alcohol than looking after their children. And now these children are back into the system and being re traumatised. There is a lot going on, and as a result of the failures of certainly the, the Territory government to make sure that, that that legislation was maintained to protect vulnerable people. Okay, now you've been a strong supporter of the cashless debit card. Uh, Federal Labor just removed it. Now, the opponents say there's very little evidence to show it's helped efforts to reduce gambling, alcohol, drugs in remote communities, despite operating trials across the country for more than five years. And that was the recent conclusion of the Auditor General. So does that suggest that Labor has been right to remove the cashless debit card? Jacinta. Well, there there are certainly um, reports that also provide um, evidence that it has worked uh, in in many communities, and there's also a large amount of anecdotal evidence where voices of um, you know these marginalised and vulnerable women, uh, particularly, uh, have have stated just how effective it has been for their lives. And you know, I talk to people regularly on the ground about the cashless debit card. I know that there were a lot of very fearful women who didn't want it removed when they heard that Labor was proposing to remove it in the lead-up to the election. The one thing that I find really, uh, I, I, I just I just think it's hypocritical of Labor is that they like to recognise Indigenous Australians and our culture but won't accept that there are elements of traditional culture that family members can demand access to people's money and they have to hand it over, they're obliged to hand it over, and that this tool was a protective measure for those vulnerable individuals. So they, they won't recognise those aspects of culture um, that are contributing to, you know, the hardships for a lot of Indigenous Australians. And that's that's what the card did. And it's very concerning. And now they've, uh, you know, last week we begin hearings on, on the repeal of the cashless debit card and we've been given a very limited amount of time to get around, we're going to Queensland, we're going to Bundaberg, Darwin, Alice Springs and then back to Canberra, which is, you know, not much time at all to speak to people about how this is going to affect them. My guest is Jacinta Namajimba-Price. She's the new country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory. Jacinta, let's turn to The Voice. The 2017 Uluru Statement of the Heart it calls for the creation of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Now, the Prime Minister wants to hold a referendum this term on whether to enshrine the body in the Constitution. The Liberal Party leader, your boss, Peter Dutton, he's kept the door open to bipartisan support. The Indigenous spokesman, Julian Lisa, supports it, as does the last Coalition Minister, Ken White, who, like you, is also Aboriginal. You'll oppose it. Why? 
I oppose it because I haven't seen um, all I've seen, all I've witnessed, I think all Australia has witnessed is bureaucracy after bureaucracy of this kind of um, that is being proposed for the voice continue to fail and not actually provide a voice for those marginalised people that certainly I'm trying to allow to be heard. Uh, going forward. And uh, I know that um, Peter Dutton as our leader is is basically saying, look, just show us the detail. And that is Mm. another area that I can see that Labor is continuing to fail on is providing the detail of what this looks like, um, making a generalised statement about what the question will be, be that will be put to the Australian public and then saying that you know, Parliament will determine what this means afterwards. It's very, very dangerous um, as far as I'm concerned. I don't like the idea of us Indigenous Australians being separated along the lines of race and the suggestion Mm. that we're forever going to need special measures and be marginalised, you know, within our constitution. We should be aiming to be equal as Australians and not have to require um, these measures forever. Fred Cheney, a former Aboriginal Affairs Minister in the Fraser government, he says, quote, Aboriginal people want to be consulted on things that affect Aboriginal people. Well, I think every Australian wants to be consulted on what, how, you know, everyday, how, how policies, how legislation affects them uh, in their lives. And, and I think, you know, half the problem is that particularly out in remote communities, like we've seen certainly with the cashless debit card, is that vulnerable people will appreciate a measure like that. Then over time, there will be those members of community who take a certain position on things and who will effectively bully others around them and silence them. Uh, And and we don't often get to hear those marginalised voices. And, And given that there are many out there, there are many, there have been many pushes and proposals and wants and asks um, and and this Albanese government is suggesting that even if we do have a voice, we don't have to listen. Well, then I, I don't see the point of it. And I think it comes down to, it certainly comes down to how, one, bureaucracies can do things better that already exist uh, and how those consultations um, can be done better within those bureaucracies. I don't think we need another layer to have to go through when Indigenous Australians are already dealing with so much bureaucracy. Yeah, when you talk about bureaucracy, the promoters of The Voice say that these proposed constitutional amendments, they're fairly modest. It would just have an advisory role to governments. It wouldn't be a third chamber, as Malcolm Turnbull has called it, and it would not have veto powers, as Tony Abbott has warned. So if all that's true, Jacinta, that's hardly radical tinkering of the constitution, right? Well, there's no point, really. You might as well just legislate it. And if it fails, um, which, you know, we've seen over again it has, then we don't need it <laughs> in, in the Constitution. Why put it in the Constitution once again where it divides us along the lines of race and suggests we're always going to need those special measures? What about the political dynamics to this? George Megalogenis writing in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age He says, and he's not alone, that in the wake of the federal election results last May, opposition to The Voice will, quote, further alienate the coalition from an electorate that is more progressive today than at any point in the cycle since the 1980s. Jacinta. 
Well, I, I think that we have to look at the fact that, um, you know, the Albanese government certainly didn't come to power with a landslide um, and, and that I think the majority of Australians were in fact not happy with major parties in general going forward. But I think it's really important um, that we have open discussions, that we're able to ask questions publicly because I think what, what has led us to this point is the fact that voices have been suppressed. Um, you know, we, we've, been, we've been called names if we have a certain um, perspective on issues as opposed to allowing for uh, respectful and, and vigorous debate to take place. And so certainly coming into the Senate, that is something that I want to be able to promote um, and to highlight other very important voices. On that note, do you think that certain media outlets are behaving like advocates of the voice rather than providing a, a sort of fair and balanced coverage? Absolutely. There, there are definitely – the media should be doing their job and, and acting impartially and allowing for a variety of voices to be able to be expressed in any debate going forward. It should never be in support of one side or the other but it but it it clearly there clearly has been a lot of push to support this idea of a voice i find that deeply concerning uh you know it has been suggested in some um media outlets or you know what will it take to change Jacinta Price's mind well and i've said i've said publicly well, why should i have to change my mind on this you know what why why is my position the wrong position why is it that we cannot have um, robust and respectful debate on the, these issues so that people can make very informed decisions if they should go to vote at a referendum. Well, I think that many uh, prominent supporters of The Voice are actually worried that this could be, this referendum could be a replay of the 99 referendum over whether Australia should become a republic. You're probably too young to remember that, Jacinta, but I remember virtually all the media outlets, uh, especially Rupert Murdoch's papers, uh, I think the Brisbane's Career Mail might have been an exception, but they strongly supported the Republic and, and mm. yet it lost convincingly. Mm. Yeah, it's it's uh, and and that's I think our history in terms of referendum and 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 certainly when Labor has put up a, a referendum shows that Australians don't tend not to really want to make uh, changes to our constitution and 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 rightly so I think you know they have to really be the right changes for Australians um, to get behind them and I mean I have faith I think most Australians feel like. We've been living through a time uh, where, you know, our, Australia has been divided up into two sets of people and that's oppressors and the oppressed. And I think many Australians are, are, are probably very tired of, of this particular divisive push that's gone on and, and want to see Australians um, want to be recognised as, as one country, one, one people, regardless of what our heritage is. And I think, I think this particular push is actually going to, uh, yeah, I think Australians in general won't want to support something that divides us along the lines of race. Well, you've certainly spoken out uh, about a wide range of public policy issues affecting the Indigenous community and you've been very vocal on The Voice, but for your pains, and I'll conclude with this, you've been denounced in, in very crude terms, uh, a coconut, for instance, 
brown on the outside, white on the inside. The left-wing Twitter mob, they love to hate you. Uh, how do you account for this? I mean, why do you attract such nasty abuse from some of your opponents? <laughs> yeah, um, I guess because they want to maintain the status quo. And and, and I guess when I talk about issues, it's, it's probably hits a raw nerve because there's a lot of truth in what I have to say and it makes people uncomfortable. I'm not really – I've dealt with bullies all my life. When they start calling you names, I guess you know you've won. You must be doing something right, and that's how I view it. And for me personally, there are very vulnerable people that I'm trying to support, I'm trying to enable so that their voices might be heard, and as long as they exist, I will, I will always speak out regardless of the name calling, um, which is you know brainless as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I know that our country more than ever needs um, to be able to have clear, open, honest conversations regardless of how they might make people feel uncomfortable. That was Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, the new country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory. Up next, as geopolitical tensions rise and with global coal production booming, what does this mean for progress on international climate and carbon reduction? A watershed moment. The boldest climate legislation ever. Well, that's how new laws to reduce emissions in both Australia and the US have been described. Higher targets, faster timeframes, more subsidies to renewables, and increased incentives for industry to transition from fossil fuels to wind and solar. However, news elsewhere tells a different story. In response to US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, Beijing has suspended climate talks with Washington. Now, between them, China and the US are responsible for about 40% of carbon emissions. The rupture in US-China climate change cooperation, well, that comes at a time when even Europe has fallen back on more coal power amid the Ukraine war, an energy crisis, and rising prices. And remember, the world still depends for about 80% of its energy on fossil fuels. So what does all this mean for global climate progress? Is the energy transition a relatively cost-free exercise? And why are carbon emissions across the developing world, why are they escalating? Benny Pizer is Director of Net Zero Watch in London. Benny, welcome to ABC Radio. Yes. Hi, Tom. Good to speak to you. Now, the prominent left-leaning New York Times columnist Paul Krugman says the new US climate legislation, which has been passed just in the last week or so, that could, quote, save civilization. Benny, your thoughts on this so-called watershed moment? It's a bit same old, same old. We've heard this now for the last 30 years, and whenever there is a new law or a new policy adopted, then it's... Uh, we've saved the world, we've saved the planet. In reality, of course, this is a desperate attempt 
by the Biden administration to get something out of their current mess. Um, I very much doubt this will uh, survive contact with reality. In the meantime, they will spend, you know, billions and billions, uh, mainly on uh, the green industry. Um, so billionaires owning, you know, Tesla and so on, they will all make billions. But I very much doubt this will survive for very long. The Democrats are very likely to lose badly in November, and then it's almost certainly game over. But doesn't this legislation uh, increase incentives to the private sector to, you know, transition from fossil fuels to renewables energy? Yes, it does. It does. And it has done this for the last 30 years. And we can now see the result of all these. In Europe, we've spent almost a trillion euros on renewables. And the end result is the worst energy crisis since World War II. And this winter will be absolutely horrendous. And very, you know, many governments won't survive this winter. Well, the supporters of this this climate bill, uh, now we've got to put this in context, $370 billion. It's the largest ever uh, legislation passed to combat climate change. The supporters say that the growth of renewable energy, which will happen as a result of this, that will lead to the creation of relatively high-paying jobs and, you know, wind and solar are expected to be much cheaper over time. Yeah, none of this actually has happened in Europe. Um, most of the, you know, green jobs have gone to China. Um, there are no real uh, industry, renewable energy industries, manufacturing industries left in Europe because China can produce that much cheaper and uh, that means that uh, the jobs have actually been exported. In terms of cost, if you think about the situation in Europe, we've been told for the last 20, 30 years that renewables will bring energy prices down. Ever since they've started to expand renewables, energy prices have only risen. There's no evidence whatsoever that they have reduced uh, the cost of energy. And I expect the same to happen in the US and in Australia. Yeah, but what um, if there is a breakthrough in battery or other technology? I mean, that will surely lead to substantially decreased emissions. That's what your critics would say. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but what if these breakthroughs promised for the last 20 years don't happen? What if we find out that there aren't batteries big enough to store the energy that we need when there is no wind, no sun, so uh, solar energy? So, yeah, they always say we'll get a breakthrough. But there are no breakthroughs. There are simply, despite 20 years, 30 years of promises of this breakthrough that will make renewables uh, sustainable, they, they are nowhere to be seen. Electric vehicles, what about tax credits for people to purchase EVs more readily? Yeah, great. If you want to buy an electric car in the US, the new climate bill will give you $7,500. You know, it's a fantastic gift to the wealthy. It's great. It's mainly driven by the wealthy elites because they benefit most. Some of our listeners tuning in might say you're overlooking the role of big business here because isn't it true that the US, indeed Western corporations, they are investing heavily in a green energy future? You think of oil and gas companies, they've been losing shareholder battles to climate change activists. Financial institutions are divesting their managed funds from 
you know, corporations invested in fossil fuels. I mean, doesn't all this pressure from investors in the capital markets to slash emissions dramatically, has this momentum really been reversed in light of everything you've been saying? No, it hasn't been reversed. And you're absolutely right. Of course, all the big companies have jumped uh, on this bandwagon, not least because governments have told them that they would be punished if they don't go in that direction. But they are losing out big time. Uh, the, the big losers now in the energy crisis in Europe are people who invested in renewables. And the big winners are people, the very, very few people are still investing in conventional energy. That um, you know, the prices of conventional energy have gone through the roof. Everyone in Europe is going for coal. It's the only kind of uh, secure energy form in the face of Russian aggression. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that uh, big companies and, you know, the investors and banks and the whole institutions have gone down that green road to disaster, uh, I'm afraid. Benny, let's now turn to Europe and particularly the Ukraine crisis and its consequences for climate and energy policy. Uh, Tell us about the continent's dependency on Russia for fossil fuels. Yeah, well, Europe wanted to look green uh, for so long. So they essentially banned all sorts of um, extraction of European oil, gas and coal and basically asked uh, Russia to deliver the goods. They thought that uh, that that would look good, look better, which means that we're dependent in Europe on about 50% coal, 40% oil, 30% gas. Consumption comes from Russia. Um, So we are heavily dependent. Uh, Britain uh, less so uh, because Britain is still uh, a... uh, extracting oil and gas in the North Sea, although Britain has also banned fracking. All of this, of course, is now uh, back on the table. Everything is changing very rapidly. Although we're in the midst of summer, come October, November, uh, and energy prices are threatening to triple or quadruple in the winter, uh, which means a third or, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the British public will face energy poverty and millions of families won't be able to pay their bills. So, as I said, this crisis changes everything, regardless of what's going on in Washington. Uh, The energy bill will change governments and will change policy and the debate just started. And uh, even the Greens in Germany uh, has been supporting coal production again, is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They say, well, it's... it's, uh, it really doesn't look good, but we have to do it because otherwise the lights go out. So that's the reality check. That is the reality check. And no matter how many wind farms and solar panels you put in, you know, on German roofs or in, uh, in the countryside will help you uh, because uh, there are periods uh, in Europe where there is no wind and very little sun. And then you need essentially the entire conventional power sector uh, powering uh, Europe. So we are in this terrible uh, situation, I would say the worst uh, energy and security crisis since World War II, which is changing the whole debate. That's why I'm saying forget about the the, the spin that you hear in the papers or in the, on the news. Mm. 
the reality is we're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, so just to, to clarify here that uh, coal's now booming worldwide, and it's not just coal production, but the amount of traded coal is increasing, and also the percentage of global electricity generated by gas is rising. But see, your critics would say this is a short-term response to the Ukraine an energy crisis, in Europe at least, and they'd say that over time, wind and solar, uh, particularly as more and more investments are made in renewables, they'll become more reliable, more affordable, which means that Europe ultimately won't need to rely on Russian or Saudi fossil fuels for their energy. Yes, that, that, that as I said, they've been saying this for the last 30 years and of course, they haven't solved the problem of intermittency, which means their uh, renewables still are unreliable. They're still much more costly. Uh, the costs haven't come down. And my own, you know, guess guess is that, uh, yeah, p- governments and and countries in Europe still want to decarbonize, but they might move more towards nuclear energy in coming years. And in the meantime, conventional energy generation will remain much more affordable, much more reliable both yeah, in terms of cost and security. You're saying that uh, countries around Europe uh, and Britain are being mugged by reality by this crisis, but Boris Johnson, um, who himself uh, unashamedly championed uh, climate change mitigation, his likely successor, Liz Truss, she hasn't, correct me if I'm wrong, distance herself from the general policy of net zero emissions by 2050, has she? Both of them, uh, both candidates, have made it conditional. So this is Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. They're buying for the Tory leadership. Sorry, Benny, go on. That's right. They, they say they are in favour of net zero, but only if it doesn't damage the economy or consumers. Now, that's a very big conditional um, sentence at the end of net zero confirmation. And of course, uh, reality will drive policies now. As I said, I expect the winter to be that so devastating that all policies will be on the table. Everything will be open for revision. And I'm pretty confident that net zero, 2050 net zero date will not survive this winter. Let's turn to China on the eve of the G20 in Brisbane in 2014 and again on the eve of the Glasgow conference in 2021. uh, There was much media hoopla about the China-US deals to cooperate on climate change. But China, in response to US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China has suspended those global climate Uh, cooperation talks with Washington. What's the significance of this? After all, the US and China between them account for about 40% of global emissions. Well, it's just a a warning shot by the Chinese who are angered by by Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Uh, It's it's more symbolic. Um, It doesn't have any implications whatsoever. Because even when China was talking to the US, it never made any binding commitments whatsoever. All these commitments are voluntary and they are not legally binding. And so therefore, they're meaningless. So the Chinese are just playing a silly game. Uh, It doesn't have any implications whatsoever. Okay, you say that Beijing uh, does not sign legally binding, enforceable and verifiable agreements, but it nevertheless, Benny, 
It is widely believed that China is a global trendsetter on wind, solar technology, lithium batteries and electric vehicles. So doesn't that suggest that China is indeed decarbonising its economy? Well, it's not. We know it's not decarbonising. It's carbonising its economy in a big way. What? I mean, the Chinese CO2 emissions are going through the roof. And oh, there's, there's no, no question about that. Yes, net emissions are steadily escalating, but it, it will peak, uh, uh, I understand, in 2030. That's the argument. And then it'll come down dramatically because of all that uh, wind and solar technology. Well, that's what they claim. I would say from my reading of the Chinese situation, they have no intention to radically decarbonize. They have no intention to abandon coal. And their kind of renewable energy propaganda is mainly targeted at the West to so look, you know, for the Greens to say that China is a green superpower. But, you know, if, in the in the overall picture, renewables is a drop in the ocean compared to their conventional power generation. And they're also fracking and they're looking for more oil and gas. And they will also go all over the world to get their uh, energy they need. So I very much doubt um, that China has any intention to decarbonize its economy whatsoever. And the and the strategic competition between China and the US is intensifying, as is the Russia-US strategic competition. How yeah. do you think Beijing and Moscow uh, will respond to the West's uh, increasingly more uh, enthusiastic climate commitments? Oh, they, they will applaud that. They will celebrate that. They see this as their, the biggest self-defeat in their competition with the West. They can't believe their luck. And uh, so they celebrate it. And whenever the you know, U.S. Uh, says they want to hold or whenever the Republicans want to, you know, hold some of these policies, they will say, oh, you are, you know, very, very bad boys. You're not going green and so on. So the Chinese and the Russians, they love the green agenda. It helps them tremendously in their energy security. Uh, they will benefit tremendously from the self harm inflicted on Western nations, both in terms of the cost increases and the energy insecurity that comes with it. So in other words, Beijing and Moscow will see this attempt by Western countries to slash their emissions as an opportunity to increase their own power and influence. My guest, Benny Pizer, is addressing global progress on climate mitigation. You're on the ABC's Radio National. Benny, the hope among the climate enthusiasts is that China will eventually return to the negotiating table with the Americans, uh, probably yes. in time for COP27 in Egypt later this year. But regardless of Beijing's decision to cooperate with Washington on this and other issues, what about the progress of recent UN global summits. I think particularly Paris in 2016 and, of course, Glasgow last year, they were hailed as big deals to slash the world's carbon footprint. What's your sense? Did they do anything meaningful to reduce global emissions? Uh, not really. I mean, if you really look at the global CO2 emissions, they continue to go up. There's no sign of a deceleration. There's no sign that um, anything at the global level is actually changing trajectory. What we've heard in recent 
weeks is that the next COP in Egypt, mm. that the African countries will use the uh, African COP to actually call for increased fossil fuel extraction and use. They will argue that it's now time for the Africans to catch up, that the Europeans and the Americans had 150 years of a free ride on cheap energy, and it's now the Africans who should get the chance to develop on the basis or the back of fossil fuels, and that the rich world will have to compensate Africa from the damage they are experiencing as a result of climate change. Well, you mentioned the developing world. I mean, the non-OECD, that accounts for about 65% of global emissions. Now, the UN deal at Copenhagen in 2009, that encourages rich nations to pay US $100 billion a year from 2020 onwards. This is designed to help those developing nations transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. What's been the progress here? Very little progress. And of course, it's being used, this whole compensation, green climate fund argument for the developing nations to say, well, unless this money flows 100 billion every year in their direction, they're not going to decarbonize. They can't afford to decarbonize. And as I said, the next COP in Egypt is almost certain to be used by the developing world to A, argue for more coal, oil and gas extraction in Africa to develop Africa at the same time as asking the developed world for compensation for climate damage. So I'm not expecting any changes. This is this is a, a routine, a ritual, an annual ritual that happens in December. Uh, we've uh, had it for the last 30 years. And if you compare the number of COPs the, of these UN climate summits uh, against the uh, level of CO2 in the atmosphere, there's a direct correlation in that nothing really, no matter how many UN conferences you've had, no many, how many agreements you have, it has absolutely no effect on the rise of CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So I'm afraid you you have to you know wh whenever you read these kind of stories and and successes and so on you have to measure it against reality every time look at reality and that's why the process of decarbonizing the economy particularly in those non-OECD nations it's awfully complicated because as I think uh, you have argued in the past uh, the leaders of these countries their priorities is to grow their economies and reduce poverty. And the cheapest way of doing that for the foreseeable future is obviously on the back of carbon energy. But that might change, as we mentioned before, with technological changes. Finally, Benny, the new Australian government of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, it's set to pass uh, climate legislation through our Senate. It's passed the House and it's a near certainty to pass the Senate now that the Greens are on board. Now, this legislation's not dissimilar to the American legislation that's been passed in the, in, in the recent weeks, but it seeks to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030. At the same time, though, uh, the cold hard reality is this. Our economy, Australia's economy, we're highly dependent on exports of not just iron ore, but coal and gas. And that tax revenue helps subsidise government services. Now, given everything you've said throughout this uh, exchange and the poor global prospects, you think of Europe's energy crisis, 
China's heavy reliance on foreign fossil fuels, the non-OECD's rising emissions. Given all this, what's your sense of the new, more enthusiastic Australian position? Australian voters voted for this government, so they shouldn't complain when they get hit by rising energy bills. They voted for us, they wanted it, and they'll get it. I have no doubt they will get it uh, in, in a big way. That's the price of uh, believing the kind of promises we've heard, as I said, for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's just a question of time, in my view, that Australians will realise they may have... Um, been let down. Um, but it might take a while and a hit. Uh, we in Europe certainly are experiencing this now. And uh, God knows where it will end. Uh, it will be a terrible, terrible energy crisis. I have no doubt. Um, as long as people think utopian instead of being realistic about our world of energy, which is not as simple as the Greens or Labour um, tends to make. It's much more difficult and we are paying the price for leaving these kind of utopian promises. Well, Benny, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Thanks, Tom, for having me. That was Benny Pizer from Net Zero Watch in London. Seventy-five years ago this week, India was partitioned, and that led to the creation of an independent India and Pakistan from British rule, which in turn led to one of the bloodiest upheavals in modern history. After partition was announced, all hell broke loose. Riots and massacres in which Hindus and Muslims attacked each other, and the first of three major wars between India and Pakistan began in 1947, the other wars being in 1965 and 1971. More than a million people were killed in just a matter of months. Extraordinary violence and bloodshed. And to think the legacy of that separation, well, that's endured. One of the leading intellectual authorities on the 1947 partition is Nasid Hajari. He's author of Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. I spoke with Nasid five years ago, and I began by asking him to take us back to August 1947. So at this point, the middle of the 20th century, the British had been ruling India for almost 200 years, and a movement had begun in the early part of the century to demand self-rule, uh, at first still within the British Empire, and this was a very proper, sedate movement led mostly by lawyers and businessmen. Um, you know, There were a few violent radicals, but they were a fringe element. But as the British began to devolve some power to Indians over provincial governments, for instance, the divides between Hindus and Muslims began to deepen. And this started around 1937 and coalesced into a demand for a separate Muslim state uh, in the northwest and northeast of the subcontinent, where Muslims were a majority of the population. This demand took, really took root during World War II when the sort of mainstream independence leaders, people like Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, were imprisoned by the British. So your argument then is that we already had seeds of animosity between Hindus and Muslims before 47, because some scholars would argue that it just came to the surface when India's British colonial rulers pulled out. 
It's interesting. There, of course, have always, were always tensions, uh, as you would expect in any multi-faith society. You know, this went back generations. And sometimes this was expressed in, in grand terms, where you know Hindus might talk about the the brutalization of their community under Mughal rulers and so on. Um, and other times they were is it expressed in very petty terms, where uh, Muslims in a particular village might resent uh, Hindu moneylenders or uh, Hindu peasants might resent their Muslim landowners. Um, riots would break out from time to time, but they were generally fairly localized and, and could be um, quelled pretty easily. But to put you on the spot here, I mean, did Nehru, the incoming Indian Prime Minister, or Jinnah, the, the first Governor General of Pakistan, did either of them foresee the scale of the, of the coming violence? No, ex- exactly. They uh, did not expect it to be as big as it was and, and as deadly as it was. And this really had to do with the fact that the British were leaving, which opened up a power vacuum uh, and created a great deal of fear on both sides about what, what would come next. And you said uh, the idea of Pakistan was first proposed by, am I right in saying, Indian Muslim students at Cambridge as early as 1930. I suppose that begs the question, just to be a devil's advocate here, If India had been granted home rule earlier, the question of partition, might that have arisen? I don't think it would have. Yeah. And, you know, there was a moment in early in the war in 1942 where the U.S. was pressuring Great Britain quite heavily to give independence to India in order to uh, get Indians fully committed to the war effort. And if that had happened at that moment, um, partition really would, would most likely never have happened. That was Nasid Hajari on this program on the partition of India 75 years ago this week. Well, that's it for the program. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including my recent exchanges with the political scientist John Mearsheimer, the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, and Australian journalist Jennifer Hewitt and Jacqueline Maley on federal politics. If you'd like to listen to that episode, just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.